When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, welcome back to the Silver Fortune podcast. I have a returning uh, guest here, uh, Paul Eberhardt of silverdoctors.com. Paul, how are you doing today? Doing great, Matt. Thanks for having me back on your show, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about the markets and the economy today. Yeah, I mean, I, I always like these conversations because uh, uh, they, they have less of the feel of a structured interview and more of just a conversation between two guys that... that uh, you know, see eye to eye on on enough things to to uh, to 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 kind of go off of each other on a lot of these these different topics. So, uh, you know, I wanted to start off here, and this is kind of going off of one of your recent posts over on SilverDoctors.com. There's a link in the description, by the way, uh, to to that website for those that that want to check it out. Um, but but talking about 2021, you know, we're wrapped up the year here, uh, including for precious metals and the, you know price action. Unless something crazy happens, you know, we're we're seeing silver. End the year almost flat, right? Uh, sitting around $22, $23 uh, an ounce. And, and that was not what I expected. I don't know what your expectations were, but that's what a lot of people weren't expecting for 2021, right? We had so much excitement, especially in the first quarter, second quarter of the year. Um, we were kind of riding high in some of that momentum from 2020. And here we are, you know, pretty much flat. Uh, that's what probably most people didn't expect, right? Most people were saying it's going to go you know, 50 plus or back into the teens. And, and here we are still kind of languishing in the, the low twenties. Why, you know, before we go on to 2022 and, and the price action that, you know, what, give me, give me your thoughts on that. Why the heck did so many people get it wrong? <laughs> so many people did get it wrong. I've been getting it wrong too, because I've been like one of the last remaining holdouts for silver in the teens and, and hoping to back up my truck and get somewhere around spot price at that price. But, uh, yeah, so many people got it wrong. And well, first of all, we're down about almost 15% on the year in silver. Silver opened above $26. So we're down about $4 on the year. So gold, not as much. Gold is down about 100 bucks. Gold opened at, I think, 1906 or 1907. But silver was above 26. So silver is actually down significantly. Um, but, but, but why? And, and it's crazy because we've had these huge moves over the last several days where we'll get back up to above 25, not over the last couple of days, but we'll get back up to above 25. And then all of a sudden we're back in the 22s again. So it's just been all over the board throughout the year, some highs and some lows in this generally choppy $20 range. But, you know, I just think people underestimate the extent to which, for lack of a better term, the manipulators will go through to keep a cap on the price of silver. Um, you know, I think that in part – there was a ton of excitement that came in in March, um, excuse me, at the end of January and in the beginning of February, which rolled over into March. So it was in that first quarter, especially with this whole silver squeeze stuff. But that's immediately what triggered me to get bearish because I would generally like to consider myself a contrarian um, and a contrarian who's in the alternative media. So those are just a couple things where, you know, people had been bearish for years and I was bullish. And then in late January and in early February, once everybody and their brother got bullish, then that's when I immediately had to get bearish because of the contrarian in me. So I've actually been looking for silver in the teens and I've been wrong about the price, but I've been right about the pressure. But I just think that, you know, silver is one of those interesting markets where people don't talk about the margins a lot, but a lot of stuff can happen on the margins, right? When, when silver disappears or where then there's, you know, from, from the market, when physical silver is in short supply and there's like only one or two products that you can choose from and the premiums are through the roof or, or if there's some excitement in the market and, and all of a sudden it just draws out and out and out and out, and then people lose interest and they move on to other things. Silver is one of those kind of markets where, at the margins with the sentiment, this is one of the things that can really move and drive prices, I think, if that makes sense. So, you know, I'm still waiting on the ultimate capitulation and I haven't really seen what I would consider the ultimate capitulation. I don't know what that's going to be. Um, I know that in like 
I would say 2016 and 2017, we had some capitulation, some ultimate capitulation in the gold and silver price when some of the biggest names just kind of like abandoned it altogether. And that was it. So there was a capitulation right there. I haven't seen the capitulation yet for silver, which is what I think silver needs to really, really, really take off. But, you know, the, the, in my opinion, the manipulation and the corruption and, and the market rigging is real. And I mean, it's, it's provable, right? You can just go to the Treasury's website and read about the exchange stabilization fund right there at treasury.gov. But, you know, if, if, if in fact, you know, there is, there is an active suppression policy, I think that this market will be the last market of all the markets to go. So you talk about the stock market, you talk about the interest rate market, the gold market, the cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, of all the markets that anybody who would have their hand on the lever is going to be pulling, silver is going to be the last one to go. So they will, they will relinquish control of silver after only all else fails. Um, did any of that make any sense? That was kind of like a huge rambling there, Matt. No, I think I think Absolutely. Uh, I, uh, I think you're absolutely spot on when you talk about, you know, silver being a market, like most commodities that, you know, the price action happens on the margins. Uh, you know, how many times usually people that are bearish, uh, on silver will, will point at things like, uh, you know, the average cost, uh, you know, the average all in sustained cost for, for production of an ounce of silver. And you say, well, look at this average cost, which is usually, you know, in the low teens or single digits. And you say, well, no, silver is not going to 50, but it's, that's the case for any commodity. Look at, look at the oil market. Oil can be at a hundred dollars and the average cost per barrel of oil, you know, so you get out the ground can be at, at 20 because it doesn't matter if you meet 80% of supply, you know, at, at $20, if that last 20% of supply to, you know, meet whatever, whatever, whatever demand is, is coming out of the ground at you know fifty or or eighty or a hundred dollars a barrel, then then that's what the cost that the market is going to be, and it's just gravy on top for all those producers that are that are getting out of the ground at a lower cost. And the same is true for silver, right? And so it's at the margins, and 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 so that's hugely important for for not just on the supply side and what the cost is to produce it, but also on the supply side for or, or on the demand side for for when you have an unexpected extra 50 million ounces of demand in a given year because, you know, India starts buying again, uh, you know, I talk about them as a monolithic group, but, but, you know, Indians start buying uh, silver again because they like the price action or they don't like what's happened to their currency or their, their, their economic situation is better. Or you have 50 million ounces, um, you know, sequestered by, by Sprott or, or something along those lines. Uh, that's where the, that's where the margin happens. You know, I think you're, you know, I'm, and, and, I'm, and, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm totally on board with the idea. Yes. And Go I ahead. want to follow up on your point with that, because that's a great point that you're making, because in a sense, like, and, and, and talking about the margins one step further, it's like, there's always just enough silver, right? So we know that there's what they call a paper price. And we know that there's what they call a price for the real physical silver in and of itself. So at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what the paper price is if you need physical silver, right? If you need physical silver, you're going to pay sometimes above spot, sometimes at spot, sometimes below spot. It really just depends how the market is at that moment in time, independent of the paper price. So, you know, this is one of those things where, isn't it interesting that even though we're talking about prices being set at the margins, there's always just enough silver at the end of the day, it seems, to meet that demand one way or another. Um, um, speaking about those margins, you know, because if if the paper price is twenty two fifty an ounce and, you know, you need 100,000 ounces, well, I mean, the paper price yeah, that matters, but you need 100,000 ounces. You know what I mean? So it's like, there's also that dynamic of it too, where where that's why the margin is so important because we have the paper financial silver markets and then we have the actual silver markets, which involves getting actual product. And it's kind of like... Um, Kind of like the Xbox, right? Like the Xbox I've been following for two years when it first came out. And the same thing for the PlayStation. But, you know, the price is $499, but you can't buy it anywhere for that price. So if you want to buy it, you got to pay $1,000, well, over $900 on eBay from a reseller. And that's the actual going rate for a physical Xbox in your hand. So silver is the same way. And the margin is so important because, you know, like, like, like we're talking about this two different market phenomenons. And 
and part of the problem with the margin is if so, let's say the price isn't working out for somebody or it's not the investment that they thought or they really need, you know, for whatever reason, they were thinking that silver was going to become more valuable. Well, I mean, if that person needs to to get some more return on their investment for whatever that even means, well, then they might look into, well, I've got X amount of dollars. And instead of just buying some silver eagles or some generic silver rounds or something, why don't I just put it into the stock market? Because it's going to generate me a return on that money even faster and stuff like that. So that's part of the problem at the margin too. You know, a couple of years ago, what was it? It was people saying, oh, well, it's because, you know, Bitcoin's taking all the shine and from gold and silver and it's taking all the luster off of gold and silver. And well, now you could also argue that, you know, if that's true, then you would also say that, you know, well, some of these financialized, you know, Frankenstein silver paper products that people can trade in the financial markets. Well, that's also taken some of this margin off, too. So and, and that's where the market manipulators have the advantage because they have unlimited money and therefore time on their side. And when you have those two things, then that margin is very important. So I think that's why. So many people overall got it wrong in 2021 because at the margin, it's been such difficult time. And, and then the other thing, and if I can continue this thought for just one second, Matt, the other thing that drives me crazy about that is, you know, on the one hand, if you've got people talking about silver and their expectations for silver and what the silver market is doing, but at the other hand, they're sitting in there and they're trading in these financial markets and they're buying call options on SLV and they're buying puts on you know, J-Dust or who knows whatever it is that people are doing, well, that's not really helping for the cause of liberating silver in the long run. That's just enabling the system as it is now, which is why everybody's been so wrong on 2021. You know, there's that saying like, like uh, you can't convince a man of something if his paycheck depends on it or whatever it is. So, you know, on the one hand, people have to sell website services and newsletters and all this and all that. But on the other hand, you know, if, 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 you're making these forecasts, but you're discounting the manipulation and you're not considering the margins, then you're going to be wrong, which is why 99% of everybody's been wrong about silver this year, if that made any sense, Matt. Yeah, absolutely. And I think manipulation, uh, my, my listeners know that I am not a denier of manipulation, but you know, one of the things I've noticed lately is, you know, markets happen in markets and and movements and or lack thereof in the price of markets it's sometimes uh, a, a, a sort of a question of you know what came first the chicken or the egg what comes first the price action or the narrative does the narrative drive the price action or does the price action drive the narrative and and i think the narrative is is hugely important to what hasn't happened in silver in 2021 and namely there's there's still i think a huge amount of faith in our you know we can call them our our, our monetary overlords you know the federal reserve and, and central banks the world over and, and and i certainly want to talk more about this uh, here today and, and it's kind of some of their recent you know, their most recent meeting where where the fed basically came out and said hey we're hiking three times next year and and hiking rates again you know three times in 2023 or at least that's their expectation they're they're for sure stopping qe by by march uh this is a you know the overton window of of fed policy has moved so far um to in the dovish direction but this is a relatively hawkish stance by the fed uh given the increased amount of leverage uh, in the system today uh, debt and 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 the increased amount of support that you know the the markets are really dependent on and and the, so the reason i'm bringing this up is that despite that relatively hawkish stance the market hasn't fallen apart i'm talking about the stock market and, and other you know equities or or commercial debt markets uh, to some extent real estate they haven't fallen significantly because of what you know should make them fall because uh, maybe you i'm going to guess going on a limit here and see you probably agree that if the fed hikes rates you know, three times this upcoming year and three times the next, and they stop QE and 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 start a uh, quantitative tightening, they're not going to make it to the end of that tightening cycle. Probably the market's going to fall apart. And it's no longer, I think in that instance, it's no longer a question of, well, is a narrative. At some point, it doesn't matter what the narrative is. The facts of the matter is that the market can't, the, the stock market can't survive with that, without that amount of liquidity, with with rates on the rise. And, and once that falls apart, then I'm, that's what I'm really kind of holding out for Paul in in terms of of narrative and in terms of the price action for the precious metals and the dollar is for people to, you know, once again, realize that the Fed doesn't, you know, they're not omnipotent. They, 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 they're not all knowing. 
And, and what they're doing right now is, is not going to work. And once the market figures that out, you know, that's a, that's a big leg down for the dollar and, and, and big move up, hopefully for precious metals. What are your thoughts on, on the fed and their policy and and narratives? Um, I think, I think, you make some awesome points about the narratives and the the effect and the chicken and the ver- chicken versus the egg and which came first because you're right and the narrative is so important and especially when it comes to the mainstream media and the alternative media and the propaganda and stuff. But my take is kind of a little bit different, I guess, because I mean, you know, I'm I'm a hyperinflationist and you know I think that there's at least a dozen different ways that we can show that the U S dollar has already hyperinflated. And I feel that we're entering the crack of boom. We're all in it right now, as a matter of fact. So, you know, um, the, the bond market bull has been like what over 40 years now. So, so there's no just gradually raising interest rates three times in 2022 and then maybe three times more. You can't do any of this stuff gradually, right? That's it's, it's a bull market. It's a bubble. It's a bond market bubble. So, you know, you can't just incrementally raise interest rates as if they were going to do something. I mean, that's that's like trying to, you know, I guess you could let the air out of a balloon if you, if you, if you never tied it, but if you tied it, the only way you can let the air out of that balloon is to pop it. And, and, and so you can't just naturally raise these interest rates a little bit incrementally, you know, yes, the real interest rate will still be deeply negative because the rate of inflation is going to be accelerating much faster than any kind of fed interest rate policy. Um, which, you know, we're talking about the feds funds rate, but even just for the bond purchases and even for, for, for us government debt or things like that. But, there's no graceful tapering. There's no incrementally raising of interest rates. I don't think there's any of that stuff that's possible. The bond market would have to crash. So we'd have to be looking at, you know, spiking uncontrollable interest rates. And I don't think anybody's going to stand for that. So I think that the end game here is, you know, that's also a which game first the chicken or the egg, because, you know, is it the Fed tightening that's going to crash the stock market just so that the Fed can begin with the quantitative, you know, easing and the stimulus again, because, you know, if the end game is hyperinflation, then the stock market's not going to crash. All we're going to get are dips, which are opportunities to stimulate even harder the next time, um, if that made sense. Um, so so I'm not looking for and, and you know, it's it's interesting because people are talking about the Fed is hawkish. You know, I'm still getting a penny or two pennies in my savings account every month. Right. So like the average person is not getting any of this benefit whatsoever. This is just like big picture financial market, macroeconomic hedge funds that are moved, not hedge funds, but just in general governments and central banks that are moving billions and hundreds of bands, if not trillions in derivatives in these markets where incremental changes in the interest rate can have huge effects on the overall outcome of the markets. It's kind of like, you know, army land navigation, where if you start on some massive long hike and you're off just a little teeny tiny bit. Well, by the time you've walked for a day, you know, you're going to be way off course. So that's kind of how this is where the average person is not going to see any benefit and is only going to further deteriorate in real terms when it comes to inflation and purchasing power. But yes, on, on the larger macroeconomic scale, that might be a benefit, but, but there's no gracefulness to it. So it's like a chicken, chicken and egg thing, as you pointed out at the beginning, the fed hikes, Market comes down, then they can simulate. So the market goes back up again is kind of what I'm looking for here as we move forward with Fed interest rate policy. You know, trying to piece apart, you know, what the Fed and their motivations are uh, is always difficult. But I have found myself wondering lately, are they trying to bring the market, it makes their job a lot easier if they have something to point at and say, see, this is why we need stimulus not see this is why we need tightening nobody likes tightening right um maybe some people right maybe you and i i mean we're we're way past you know any reasonable amount of tightening from the fed but but most people point to that and say no we want stimulus and so you wonder are, are they going to be a little more hawkish than usual is jerome powell going to say certain statements during his news conferences and whatnot uh that will will bring the market down and and i I totally agree. I, unless the Fed completely does a 180 from what their nature has been for the past 20 plus years, the market's going to drop and then it's going to find new all-time highs probably within six months. Uh, 
it's a matter of, you know, how quickly it collapses and whatnot, you know, how far does it drop 20%, 40%? I don't know, but you're right. I mean, it, it's just, all it's going to do is it's going to bring about an even larger wave of, of fed stimulus. If history is any, um, is an, you know, if we can glean anything from history, it's, you know, the next wave of stimulus is probably going to be bigger than this past one. And, Mm-hmm. And and yeah, I completely agree that we're heading in that direction. But but you know, you brought up inflation there. You're a hyperinflationist. I, I'm sort of in that same ball, ballpark uh, in terms of my own my own thoughts on it. Um, so inflation, you know, the official CPI number, which we can talk more about that here in a couple minutes. But uh, how official is it? How realistic is it? But but it's you know November. The November number was was huge, and and you have more and more people each month asking hang on a second. I thought this inflation was supposed to come down. You have more and more people realizing what the heck inflation is in the first place. And that's dangerous, right? That's dangerous to an economy. It's dangerous to a currency. That's extremely dangerous to a society. And Biden comes out, uh, damage control and basically says it's going to come down. What are your thoughts on that? Is inflation real? Uh, real inflation or, or the, the manufacturer number, is it going to come down? And, and where does it go after that? Um, it might come down in a sense of the statistical fabrications. I know there's been a lot of talk lately about, um, you know, how they're changing a little bit of stuff for the CPI going forward next year and they're basing it off of 2019 prices prior to everything happening. And then that could have pressure, downward pressure on the inflation statistics because of the fact that they're using older data from a time before all of this. But, you know, I think that they can just, work the numbers however they want and massage the numbers however they want. And let me give you a couple specific examples, right? Because people talk about like um, owner's equivalent rent. Yeah, we've all heard that one a million times. And people talk about, you know, um, substitution and you know, people talk about hedonics and all this and that. But then there's other dynamics of that that are in reverse, like the cars, right? Like, like when all of these car manufacturers say we have a micro trip shortage, so we're not putting all these safety features on the cars anymore because we can't put the, you know, the side mirror, you know, radar sensors for lane change assist or whatever it's called. And, and all of these other smart rear view mirror tech, all these things that require microchips. Well, they can't put those in the cars anymore because they don't have them and they need to produce the cars. So, so how is that? not calculated into the CPI as something that would cause the CPI to register even higher inflation because that's like a hedonic adjustment in reverse. So that's like one point. Or here's another point. Going back to the point I made about the Xbox, and this is because I'm like a computer hardware software kind of geeky guy, but like the Xbox has been $499 for two years. But you know, so that's the price. So there's been no inflation for two years, but guess what? It doesn't exist at that price. So you've got a price that is just like in imaginary fairy tale land that doesn't exist in the real world. So they're saying, you know, look, the inflation rate is here. Look, the prices are stable. Consumer electronics, the Xbox, it's the same price as it's been in two years, but you can't buy it. It's not available. So the actual real price is much higher than the stated price. It's like in the book, 1984. Well, you know, and I, and I should add. Sagan. Sorry, I was going to say just to add to add on to that, you know, mm-hmm. so you're a computer guy. How quickly does technology move in two years when you're talking computers and, and consoles? Uh, it hasn't moved very fast as uh, fast what as I'm people saying, would think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm confused about the question. Basically, what I'm saying. I guess, I guess, what I'm saying is that you know, top of the line computer in 2020. One is granted, you know, things are weird because of, of supply chain and other problems, but, mm-hmm. but 2021 top of the line is going to be much better than 2019. An Xbox that came out in 2019, um, it's going to have much better specs in 2021. So, so yes. people aren't getting the value relative to the rest of the market in the Xbox or the play, you know, PS5. Um, and yet they're still paying the same price. It, that mm-hmm. so like if you go back in the like let's say when the ps4 ps3 P, you know all the other xboxes were released two years later you could get it for a lot lower of a price and that's the opposite of what we're seeing now yeah that is the opposite and it's funny because back when we were doing live shows on silver doctors a couple years ago i remember i'd be talking about all of this like stockpiling i was doing a computer graphics cards and processors i was like you're crazy you don't know what you're talking about you're an idiot isn't that but you know I understood that there was this tablet fad for a while and that you couldn't actually be 
productive on a tablet all day long and understood all of these different changing dynamics that were going on and Bitcoin, Bitcoin had crashed. So brand new markets. So, but so now it's interesting because like now, even in the high-end computer tech field with like graphics cards and processors, those are way more now. So even though they're better, they're still way more in price this year than they have been traditionally. Um, um, and I can't, I don't remember where I was exactly going with that point. Um, you brought up 1984. Yeah. Oh yeah. Cause, cause when it comes <laughs> to the, the statistics, right. It's like, it, in my eyes, it doesn't matter what the CPI is going to say because, you know, it's like they wrote about in 1984, you know, could it be they went out to, I can't remember the exact phrase, but it was about the chocolate ration. And what had happened in the chocolate ration is, you know, the party, which is the government, the government had reduced the chocolate ration from like 30 grams a week to 20 grams a week. So the people could only get 20 grams of chocolate a week instead of 30. But they went out to celebrate and they took to the streets to protest and thank Big Brother for raising the chocolate ration, even though they had lowered it. So it's like we just live in this la-la land where it's like, you're giving me less chocolate, but I'm going to go out and celebrate and pretend that I got more chocolate. So to me, that's like the CPI, right? I always think about the chocolate ration when I'm looking at the CPI and the people just eat it up and they talk about it as if it's like a... A, a, a legitimate thing, but you know, it's, it's by official and unofficial policy. It is a mechanism to control wages, to control populations, quite frankly, right? Because so much is based on that CPI, social security, social security, disability, veterans benefits, federal employees, all this and all that. So there is an inherent, you know, uh, incentive to understate the CPI built into the system because of the type of system that we have. Um, and and yeah, when it comes to tech, when it comes to stuff like that, it's exactly right. Like we're not supposed to be seeing these things happen. We're supposed to be seeing also, since it's been two years since that Xbox came out, in theory, that Xbox should actually be going down in price. It's kind of like an iPhone. When the iPhone first comes out, it's this price. And then a year later, right before the next one comes out, or when the next one comes out, that current one gets dropped in price. So, you know, it's kind of like, I remember when plasma TVs came out in the early 2000s, and a plasma TV cost more than my truck at the time. And I'm like, wow, this is crazy, right? So just the natural tendency is to go down over price, so for price to go down over time. So that tells you there is something very, very, very wrong with the system, especially when it comes to technology, that prices aren't going down over time. And in fact, they're going up. There's something seriously messed up with the system. And it comes down to multiple things. Keith Wiener would talk about useless ingredients, which is just like red tape, for lack of a better term, which what I would call it, right? Government red tape, regulations, taxes, all this and all that. And then the other thing are the commodity costs, then worker and labor costs and design and manufacturing costs. So there's all of these things that are just showing us that the inflation problem is indeed real. And it's so not captured in the Fed's favorite PCE, price consumption expenditure, or the CPI, or any of these statistical inflation metrics. Um, Ranting again, Matt. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, you know, you brought up 1984 and the celebrating, and and it's funny uh, because we see some people, you know, some journalists that have been writing articles over the past six months about inflation and and they're almost universally lambasted, which is great. The ones that specifically talk about how inflation is actually good for you. You know, the people that, you know, they want to be contrarians. They want to, they want to see, you know, everyone says inflation is bad. Well, I'm going to write an article that says it's actually good for you. And unfortunately, most people say that that's just, that's just bunk. I, even mon- modern monetary theorists don't want to see inflation, even if their their entire ideology is built on creating it. Um, it, it they'll talk about why it's actually good for you. And, and, and the, the thing that I'm trying to get people to understand is that inflation can be a good thing, but it's only good for a, a certain subset of people, N- namely that, you know, the, the 1%, you know, this isn't a huge rant against wealth and, and, you know, the 1%, but, but that's who it benefits because we've had a ton of inflation even before 2021. It was just, you know, well, granted a ton of inflation unrecorded in the CPI, but also a ton of asset inflation and, and, you know, the top percent, benefits from that. And then when you have inflation, you know, in the CPI and you have a huge amount of inflation in uh, rent and, and housing costs and, and energy and food and transportation, everything, guess who's least affected by that negatively? It's it's the 1% because that makes up a tiny percentage of their, of their budget, of their total, you know, net worth and whatnot. Mm-hmm. You know, 
I, I want to talk about real quickly uh, um, energy. Can I can I piggyback on that? Yeah, it's fine. Real quick, Matt, because um, yes, because and it's and it's so interesting because like we just bought this house that we live in right now in 2019. So this is the third house we've owned. And just in the last two years, just by living in this house, just in the last two years, my property taxes, and it's not a fancy house. I think it was like 265 or something like that. So it's not like even a big house. It's not a fancy house. It's just a regular old Joe deplorable type of house built in the nineties. And my, my property taxes have gone up $200 a month in the last two years. So every single month I'm paying $200 more just in property taxes on the house. That's one thing. Then the other thing, you know, the school figured out a way to email you bills through email. So then they just send out an email saying, Hey, check your thing. It looks like you got some school fees due. So then the schools, they're increasing their fees. And now all of a sudden, instead of paying, you know, for some boxes of Kleenex and some hand sanitizer and this and that, now you're paying all sorts of fees and hundreds of dollars every single year just for your kids to go to public school. Right. So it's like all of these ways of inflation that aren't even being captured. And it's like, I'm just talking about two local things, right? Just like the local school and the local property tax. So, you know, you got to multiply that out and you're talking about the local inflation, then you got statewide inflation, then you got national inflation, then you got sector specific inflation. And it's just bearing down on the average person is just getting crushed in my opinion right now with it. If they don't have a plan, it's like you said, the top 1% have benefited immensely from this asset price inflation. Okay, fine. Well, guess what? Now the bottom 99% of us, now we've got to figure out how to navigate through actual inflation and real stuff. And, you know, that's the crack up boom, right? And that's people made fun of that Bloomberg article. But yeah, I mean, that's how it works. Like as soon as I get in my dollars, right? Whenever I have a dollar coming in, I'm immediately thinking, what do I need to do with this dollar, right? Do I need to put it into something that's going to go up with inflation or do I need to pay a bill with it? And those are basically the only two things that I would do with it, in my opinion, that I would do personally. Because, you know, I'm, I'm, if, if the stock market's going to hyperinflate, then I don't want to put it in a 401k, right? That's what we talk about, wealth destruction and things like that. So yes, asset price inflation has benefited the top 1%, but now it's getting real. Now it's at street level in America and the average person has to be able to front run this inflation as well um if any of that made sense either right yeah absolutely i mean that's that's how velocity and hyperinflation work you, you people don't care a whole lot if they're maybe losing one or two percent a year on their whatever they keep in their you know bank account but if they're losing eight percent and and they look at maybe their promised returns or expected returns on you know, uh, on a, on a given, you know, portfolio invested in the stock market and, and whatever else. And they're looking at, you know, well, they're shooting for 6%, 8%. And heck, I'm losing six or 8% on this cash in my bank account. I think most, most adults that have an investment portfolio or have a significant amount of cash in the bank, they can understand that concept of inflation that they're losing purchasing power by just letting it sit there. And so, yeah, they're going to spend it. They're going to spend it on a vacation. They're going to spend it on a toy. They're going to put it in an investment. They're going to pay a bill with it, something along those lines. But, but when you have that happening consistently, that as soon as that money comes in, it's going out into something else. And, and you don't have that demand for the dollars and you have that increased velocity of the underlying you know, dollars, that, that just feeds into that inflationary cycle. And, and, and you keep, the crazy thing about it is, is we're talking about raising rates, you know, the Fed, for example, which you're right, it does have an effect on the bond market, especially the, the short end, a huge effect, you know, the, the short end of the bond market basically goes off the Fed funds rate. We're talking about raising it like, hypothetically, to 1.5% two years from now. And, and we're also talking about inflation north of 5% officially, between 5 and 10%. It's, it's like the, the entire paradigm has shifted towards a higher inflationary environment, and yet real rates are still deeply negative, more negative than they've ever been, mm-hmm. as, as far as I'm concerned, maybe throughout human history. I mean, for all the talk about you know 0% interest rate policy and how that had never been done before and had never been done for that long, well, now we get negative real rates, more negative than they ever have been in human history. And the entire marketplace is still thinking, well, yes, they're negative, but this is a 10-year bond. Surely inflation won't stay this high for 10 years. But 
But how many more CPI numbers need to come out you know, on a monthly basis? How much longer do we need to see this price inflation before sentiment finally comes out and says, hey, maybe secular inflation is here to stay or you know, worst case scenario, tail risk situation. What if this is getting worse and, and we're heading towards you know, hyperinflation? Mm-hmm. I would say that it is getting worse and we're heading towards hyperinflation and that, you know, you're right because, 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 you know, on the one hand, we have had this inflation that, that is destroying people. But on the other hand, but never mind, I lost my train of thought. I lost my train of thought there. Anyway, you can, you can cut that out if you want, or you don't have to, if you don't want to. But anyway, um, <laughs> I, I completely lost my train of we'll thought. We'll leave it in for the sake of authenticity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, leave it in. Definitely leave it in. Definitely leave it in. I'm known to do that, so. <laughs> so, so one, of the, one of the, I don't know, strange, I get it. I get it why the BLS changes their methodology from year to year. They should because consumer habits change. It's, you know, obviously our beef is the fact that they always change their methodology in a way that understates inflation rather than accurately trade trait uh, um, follows it. But, but another, another thing that we don't see captured in the PCE or the CPI very well is energy inflation, which is silly to me because if we're going to see one market in which inflation is maybe going to be most evident, it's going to be in, energy markets, right? Energy, um, real estate and food, those probably come the most, you know, those are going to be the most notably affected by, you know, real inflation in the economy. And we're seeing that we're seeing, there's all sorts of, you know, uh, other details behind the scenes, especially I'm, I'm thinking Europe and their ongoing energy crisis, their natural gas shortage, all of that. But, but we're seeing energy crisis, sort of, of pop up all over the world um, in, in various energy commodities. How much does that play into the picture of inflation? How much will that drive inflation? Uh, what, what other sort of knock-on effects do we get when when, infla- when, when energy, uh, electricity, or, or transportation is you know, maybe cost four times as much as it did just a few months prior? Yeah, um, it's definitely rough. And I know people will definitely make decisions at the individual level to, um, you know, one of the people that lives in my street got rid of the pickup truck and now he's driving one of those little teeny tiny Jeep compasses or whatever it is. And and I actually bought a motorcycle in 2008, the last time we had really high gas prices. And um, it was like a, like a little two-stroke Enduro or four-stroke Enduro and it got like 80 miles to the gallon. But, um, but, 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 now I'm not the expert on the European energy crisis, but I do want to talk about energy and inflation and food for a second that you brought it up, Matt, because, you know, I interviewed uh, uh, a guy named Brian Ochsner the other day. Well, not the other day. It was probably a couple of months ago now. And um, he's talking about how, you know, he's, he's a Kansas wheat farmer and his family grows wheat in Kansas. And, you know, he's talking about how it doesn't make sense just the energy consumption in modern American agriculture where you're growing the wheat in Kansas and then you truck it to some other state and then you mill it and you grind it up and you do whatever it is you're going to do to turn it into a wheat product like flour, pizza dough or whatever. Then you transport it 500 miles back into Kansas to sell it locally. And it's like there's all of this like energy waste that's going into it. So he thinks the day of the 500 mile loaf of bread and the day of the 3000 mile Caesar salad, as he calls it, are numbered. And I would agree with that. And it's interesting you brought up this energy thing, because I think we're starting to see some of this right now. And let me give you two very specific examples. Over Thanksgiving, um, you know, we bought this turkey and I and, and you know, we've been doing this delivery at home now. So we don't really go out and pick out a whole lot of food anymore, just because it's been so convenient. But so, so that was just a coincidence that we just got this little turkey. But I remember thinking at Thanksgiving, wow, this turkey's kind of little this year. That's interesting. And I didn't say bring us a small turkey. I just said bring us a turkey. But then we got to Christmas dinner and we needed some celery. And see, this is how the energy stuff comes into play in ways that are not being captured and are not being measured, right? So let's just talk about the celery for one second. How is celery sold? Celery is sold by the stock. Right. It's not sold by weight and it's not sold by volume. It's sold by the stock, like a stock of celery. And the last time I purchased celery from the grocery store, like you got the traditional long cellophane bag that celery comes in and the stock was absolutely tiny. Like it was a tiny runt of a stock. It didn't even fill half of the cellophane celery bag that it was in. And that is exactly my point. Because of these energy costs, because of these shortages, because of the cost of feed and fertilizer 
and, and transportation and logistics, everything, which trickles back to energy, people are starting to make decisions and they're starting to say, well, I can't afford to grow this celery this long, or I can't afford to fertilize these plants that much, or I've got to use less. It's like the elderly splitting pills in half because they can't afford the medication. Well, now maybe farmers are going to start splitting their fertilizer use in half because they can't afford the fertilizer. And all of that is manifesting itself right now on Main Street as well. And to me, I was like, oh, that's a weird coincidence. How little this, I mean, it looked like a big chicken. It didn't even look like a turkey, Matt, but the celery stock just like blew my mind. I'm like, what in the world is going on here? It was like a, it was like a super teeny tiny celery stock. And that is inflation that is not measured anywhere at all. And we have to assume that, yes, there are decisions that are being made and little increments that are having actual effects now manifesting themselves as people go to the grocery stores in ways that aren't even measured at all. So I think the problem measured and unmeasured is going to continue to worsen going into 2022 and for the foreseeable future here, Matt. Well, we could sort of uh, piggyback some of the ideas that, that we were kind of talking about off air, uh, namely uh, the energy cliff, energy return on investment, a lot of the stuff that, that Steve Sanangelo talks about. And and we, we have this situation where I, I totally agree with what he's saying, that we're nearing this energy cliff. We're seeing a falling energy return on investment. Uh, energy is becoming much more expensive. It, it's out there. Oil, natural gas is out there. Obviously, wind, solar power. It's renewable. It's unlimited, pretty much, but it's it, it's at what cost, of course, and and then you combine that with an inflationary environment, and you have the underlying inflation on that energy, and yeah, that's going to have a huge detrimental effect on every aspect of our economy. I think the first thing that people think about is you know heating our home, which you know if you keep it at sixty seven instead of sixty eight, you know that's not that big of a deal. But then you get people thinking about transportation. I'm like you said, I'm going to sell my pickup truck for a car or, or something smaller, or I'm not going to make as many unnecessary trips. Um, and, and those are the, that's, that's where it stops for most people, but you're right. You go into all the other aspects of, of how we use energy um, from, from, you know, internet, you know, the internet streaming, whatever that requires a huge amount of energy to, to do all this each year. Um, cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, my, that's a huge amount of energy that goes into that. Uh, you got obviously food production, you got manufacturing, you got mining, you got production of you know, all sorts of commodities. Energy goes into all of that. And if you have a situation where energy is becoming more expensive because the underlying EROI is falling and you have an inflationary environment, which is also putting you know, an upwards pressure on, on the price of, of energy. And you have geopolitical things like, like Russia, maybe not supplying, supplying as much natural gas to, to Europe as, as they should be. Or you got countries turning off their nuclear power plants because that's what the people voted for and we're going to stick by that. I mean, that's um, it, it really kind of turns into sort of a dangerous concoction because rising energy prices that's inflation. That's 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 going to cause inflation everywhere else. It doesn't matter if you you see it or not in the CPI, or if they if they apply some modifier to the final number because you know the price of oil is at two hundred dollars a barrel now. Uh, but but inflation isn't up that much because you know that's energy and energy fluctuates. We can't. Put, that's silly. I mean, it's silly in my mind because that's where we're going to see inflation the most. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely, and. You know, I think that that when it comes to these dynamics, you know, I, I think that people sometimes call energy the master ingredient or the, I don't know, the, 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 the essential ingredient, but that's right. So, you know, this is only going to get worse for here now, now from here on out. Now, where we're lucky is that we have the dollar, right? So it's like we can print up these dollars and kind of like, like, like this is why it's helped stave off these price increases for the average American. But in other countries, people are already suffering, right? You're talking about, you know, people are going to be having to make some hard choices here if they can't afford to heat their homes this winter in Europe. Or, I mean, it's not just Europe, though. It's also, you know, gas prices are up here. Heating costs are up here. You know, um, taxes are up here. The cost of food is up here. The cost of everything is going up here, too. So it's kind of like all around the world. And, you know, my view is actually even more pessimistic than that, because, 
You know, in 2017, we made a conscious decision to move across the country from El Paso, Texas. We moved to Ohio, and I'm just outside of Toledo, Ohio. But but the point is, is that I wanted to be, you know, in an area that is closer to the production of food that could ultimately sustain itself if it came down to that, right? Because because I think that going forward, because we're talking about energy and these dynamics and how important it is in the economy in general, and we're talking about inflation and food and food prices and availability, like these are going to be important things. Like if you're in an urban city area that does not produce enough food to sustain all the people that live in the city, that's a problem, right? That's a problem going forward. So, you know, there are things that that have been set in motion that people, if if they're just figuring this stuff out now, they've got no time to get ready for all of this stuff that's happening. I mean, these are huge tectonic shifts, for lack of a better term, that are taking place around the world. And luckily, we've had had a I don't want to say an easy time here in the United States, but we've had it easier because of the dollar. But, but you know, pretty soon that's going to come to an end too. You know, I mean, it's Mexico, for example, Mexico is getting crushed right now on food prices. And I know that a lot of average Mexicans are struggling to pay for food. Guess what? The United States, I don't know if we're still importing the most from Mexico or importing the most from China, but the U.S. and Mexico import a lot of stuff, and we're just going to create more dollars, and we're just going to buy the food. So, so then the poor Mexican in Mexico can't compete. We're going to get the tomatoes, we're going to get the avocados, and that's just how it's going to be. But sooner or later, then we're going to start competing between the average Americans, right? Because you know you got the bump in the stipend for welfare and EBT SNAP and all that stuff, and you got the bump in this kind of benefit and the bump in this kind of benefit, the school lunch program, and it's not. They're still doing that two meals a day all the way until June of 2022. So sooner or later later, all of this stuff is going to affect the average person, whether it hasn't affected them in like life changing and very serious ways. If a person is not ahead of this energy crisis and this inflationary crisis, which are both kind of one and the same here, if that made sense to Matt. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're seeing shortages all around. And I think a lot of people chalked up to uh, supply chain problems, which, you know, there's, there's legitimacy. Yeah, I get it. Supply chains uh, are all sorts of, of messed up since, since 2020. But, but on the other hand, we are almost to 2022. We shouldn't expect these shortages to still be here since shipping and, and manufacturing and all of that has been back to normal for the most part, the world over for quite some time now. We still have these backlogs. We still have these supply chains and problems and shortages. And and my argument is that that's exactly what you should expect in an inflationary environment because all of a sudden transportation and wages and production of those, those goods has gone up. A lot of times um, somewhere along the line, somebody isn't willing to make um, sufficient changes to those, uh, for example, wages. And, uh, and, and you end up with a, you know, less production than expected. I mean, you look at like healthcare, you look at the healthcare system and, and nurses and doctors and, and all the other people that go into that. And they're experiencing a huge shortage of employees, huge shortage of labor. And that's because they haven't kept, they hadn't kept up for a long time in terms of, of wages with what they should be. And the same thing is happening in, you know, in these supply chains, you get shortages of, you, know, you see them all the time. You probably catalog them in your head. I see them all the time when I go to the supermarket, the most random things um, that, that, that there's a shortage of, but that's what you have in an inflationary environment. And and you're right that each, you know, the average person is going to experience that in a very serious way. It's not just going to be, you know, for, for us, it's like uncrustable, smuckers uncrustables. And they're always, they're always a shortage of those at, at, at our local supermarket, but it's going to be way past that. You know, it's going to get to the point where it's, it's not just the, the one-off item. It's going to be the rule, not the exception, uh, especially in goods that are um, non-perishable or, or in some way uh, durable, uh, you you brought up Dollar Tree coffee, <laughs> you know, in one of your recent blog posts. But anything that stores for a while, like you might not see it as much in, let's say, milk or or eggs, or maybe in, in some produce and whatnot. But but you're gonna see it in grains and and everything made from grains. You're going to see it in um, things that use sugar. Uh, pop or whatever else, um, because at some point when you have an inflation environment, people are just going to buy that. They're going to stock up on it. They're going to, you know, everyone's going to call them hoarders, but they're going to buy it because 
they want to get rid of their currency and they want to get something relatively durable. I remember talking to a woman, this was a number of years ago, and I might've brought this up in even one of our conversations before, but she had lived through uh, sort of a hyperinflationary environment. And she lived in uh, modern day Kazakhstan um, during the fall of the Soviet Union. So technically part of the Soviet Union at the time. And, uh, and she said, you know, she used the word actually tangible. People wanted tangible goods and she could go to the supermarket and she could find eggs all day, but she couldn't find salt because people knew if they're getting rid of their rubles for a good, they weren't going to buy a thousand eggs because they're going to eat, you know, a hundred of them and and the rest are going to go bad, but salt stores indefinitely or whatever else, you know? Um, And, and so all of those tangible non-perishable goods were, uh, you know, the, the shelves were empty of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it's, and, and, and it's very interesting points that you're making and I would agree. And I can't stand the word hoarder. That's, that's one of those things that just drives me crazy because on the one hand, you hear all these financial gurus talking about buying stocks and increasing your wealth and getting into crypto and all this and all that. Well, so what are they talking about? They're talking about making as much money as they can, right? But if I say go buy as much Dollar Tree coffee as you can or go buy some of this Zote laundry soap or go buy some of this canned chicken that's got a six-year shelf life, um, you know, then, then, then I'm the bad guy for causing some supply shortages or telling people they should go do this or do that. And and that's one of the things that, that I – like think is very important going forward, right? Like, especially when you're talking about these things that have a longer shelf life. Um, Because I look at it kind of like as silver is one thing, but people talk about diversifying. Well, how do you diversify? Well, you diversify with some coffee bricks that aren't going to go bad for several years and some canned chicken that's not going to go bad for several years. You know, it's like, I don't know what's going to happen to the price of chicken in 2026, but in 2026, it's still going to be good to eat that chicken. So I would rather have that right now and just try and be way ahead because that's the other thing, right? The other thing is, you know, if they're telling me the end of the world, then I know it's not the end of the world. And if they're saying that it's going to be okay, then I know it's going to be the end of the world. So the response has to be kind of like in direct opposite reaction of what we're being told, right? Like, just yesterday, President Biden tweeted out, and I'm definitely not going to get political, so don't worry about that. But President Biden tweeted out that, you know, basically I saved the economy from the brink of collapse and Americans have more money in their pocket than ever before. And so that's telling me that um, actually the economy is collapsing and Americans have less money in their pocket than ever before. So it's a total opposite thing. So when it comes to this inflation, yes, it was asset price inflation, but now it's real world inflation. And, you know, eventually we will see a deflation in asset prices after, you know, the, the stock market market and the dollar and everything else finally comes its way to outright rejection. But until that happens, now there's going to be this push into these real things. And, you know, silver, Dollar Tree, anything that is a value investment that is real, that's tangible, that can be stored easily and has a basically indefinite shelf life. That's things that I'm very interested in, which is why I find it interesting that you brought up that salt. Yeah, that's definitely a good one. Yeah. Yeah. And it's cheap, you know. But, mm-hmm. but, but I mean, you're, you're right. You're diversifying um, for, for in some ways, a, a worst case scenario. People say, well, you can't eat silver. You can't eat gold if, you know, uh, we have a, a crap hits the fan kind of moment. And, and they're right. It, the worst things get, you know, probably the less useful silver and gold will be for a while uh, before they become, you know, much, much more valuable than they have in our lifetime. You know, especially if it, if especially, especially if it, if we're talking about a collapse that extends beyond just an economic collapse, if you have geopolitical, or you have natural disasters, if you have uh, um, societal collapse, um, then then yeah, um, a pack of cigarettes, um, uh, a bottle of vodka, a, a brick of coffee. Uh, a bag of rice is probably going to be a lot more expensive in a lot of those situations, a lot more useful in a lot of those situations than, than silver. And, and so, you know, maybe, maybe you plan on selling that (laughs) coffee to some coffee shop a couple of years from now, maybe not, but, but it's a diversification and it's a huge, it's a very low cost in the whole scheme of things. Mm -hmm. And, and, and to follow up on that, you can't eat silver. I mean, I have a different, I would say that you can't eat silver, but you can use silver to buy food, right? Gold and silver are money. So there are people that are always willing to sell it and always willing to buy it because that's what people do with money. They always save it and they always spend it. So, you know, 
I would argue that that it's true that you can't eat silver, but silver can be used to purchase food, assuming that the person has food that they don't need that you could buy from. I mean, obviously, we're talking about some crazy Mad Max scenario here, but just even in a general sense, which is one of the reasons why my outlook for 2022 is not really formulated yet, because I just don't know what to think, because like on the surface and, you know, at face value, right? Like, like there's every reason in the world why silver should be taking off or, I mean, you know, like right now through 2022 and beyond. But then on the other hand, if we're talking about the margin, as we circle back to the beginning of our conversation, if we're talking about at the margins, well, at the margins, if a person can't hold off any longer, and they need to spend some of their money, they need to spend some of their silver, well, then they might be selling their silver here in 2022 because they can't afford to eat and they need to eat. And they got the timing wrong and the pricing wrong, unfortunately, on the silver. But, you know, people are always going to be buying and always going to be selling silver, if that made sense. So, yes, um, you can't eat silver, but silver is money. So in that sense, I'm kind of like still thinking about how 2022 is going to end up for the silver market in general, because if there's a lot of people at the margin who for whatever, because, you know, it's happened to me, right? Like I, I don't only buy silver, I've sold silver too, right? In a sense that it's money, right? So that's what I do with my money. I save my money and I spend my money. So when it comes down to it, if things get really tough with inflation and if things get really difficult with putting gas in your car and putting food on the table and all of these things, then, you know, don't be surprised if silver doesn't take off immediately like people are thinking about it because they might need to get that money. You know, people talk about, well, that's what happens when the market falls, is gold and silver solved because people need to come up with funds and need to raise cash and they need this and that. Well, the same thing happens in real life, right? Like if I'm facing some sort of thing that I need to raise some money really fast for, what's the very easiest, fastest way to convert any one thing into money was sell some of your gold and sell some of your silver if you need it, right? And I mean, that's what money is for. It's a tool. So, you know, I'm definitely silver bullish, but I don't know what to think about 2022, because if the inflation gets really, really serious, right? Like there's only so much blood you can sell. There's only so many hours you can work during the week. There's only so much stuff you can sell on eBay. There's only so much other income streams that you can do. And if a person has that silver, then on the margin, what's 2020, 2022 going to look like? I'm not quite sure right yet, Matt. Right. They they have to have some impetus to hold on to it. And and I, I'm talking an upwards price movement. I mean, one of the biggest headwinds for silver and gold for a while in, in a good part of 2021 and, and even 2020 that some people don't talk about is, is India and their lack of purchases of silver. And uh, what I, what I read into that and basically see is that there's probably some of the people still buying silver and gold that, that had been before. And there's a lot of people that were selling and it wasn't necessarily just on the basis that, Oh, Indians are smart buyers and they saw the price go up significantly. And now they're, um, they're staying out of the market. That, that's I'm sure part of it. But part of it is, is that India like so many countries, especially emerging markets, was absolutely rocked in 2020 and 2021 economically. And so you have all these, you know, people that are that are unemployed or dealing with higher inflation, whatever. And and yeah, they they sold their they sold their silver, they sold their gold. Cause that's exactly why they bought it. That's one of the strongest cases somebody can make for silver and gold because hey, they had it to, to sell and it, it it had retained its value much, much better than you know the rupee had um for however long they had had it. Uh I, I want to. Can I say something real quick about India? Absolutely, because this is very interesting that you're bringing up India and silver demand and stuff. Because I'm just kind of seeing stuff on the surface that are like very interesting to watch going forward for a number of reasons, and that includes India. And for one, like you know, all this trade war stuff, all this China stuff, all this you know, the CCP and all this and all that. It seems, in my opinion, that there is, in fact, a shift of trying to get all of the stuff that we consume in the United States from made in, in China to made in India. So the question is, is India going to be is there going to be a transition to India that fast? And will the transition even be possible? Right. We talk about China being a communist hardline devout, go to work, work a gazillion. But India is a lot different. India, just as a, like, if you listen to Giant Bandari, or I can't remember what exactly his name is, but he's a market analyst from India that talks about just the rampant corruption and inability for things to get done in India. So the question is this, right? The question is, 
if the United States by like on a systemic macro level is looking to get more out of India, and we see this in companies like Apple, right, making iPhones in India, or we see this, for example, RAM, right? Like I know a lot of RAM that used to be made in China or used to be made in Korea or used to be made in other countries is now starting to be made in India. So Indians are very smart when it comes to technology and stuff like that. The question is, will they able, will, will, will companies in society as a whole be able to pivot from India to China fast enough? Because this has impacts on the silver market in that sense, because if India can be successful and kind of like, you know, carrying the weight of the supply chain disruptions and the retuning of the U.S. economy for whatever that even means, then you could see more increased Indian silver demand in that sense, because as India as a whole would be more prosperous, well, what do you do with your prosperity? You put it into actual money that's going to hold its value, not something that Modi can say, you know what, you can't use the 500 or $1,000 rupee mode anymore, and you got to turn it into the bank within 30 days, right, like you did on election day in 2016. So, you know, there, there are plenty of dynamics going on in India that actually impact us in more ways than we think. Look at the Dollar Tree selling these, like, like my family likes these biscuits. What are these biscuits called? They're called Belvita. They're like these cookies. They're like these four packs of cookies. And they're actually made by the Mondelez group, which makes Oreos. And all this stuff is made in Mexico, but I guess that's getting too expensive now. So like the Dollar Tree actually has these biscuit cookies and I can't remember the brand of them, but they're literally from India. So this is just not, you know, just a couple sectors, but there's just a massive push overall where we're trying to carry the U.S. economy and the burden of these supply chain disruptions, in my opinion, by pivoting from China to India, because India is kind of like our coming up and coming best buddy now, it almost seems, right? Biden has done a lot of these task force, and guess who's in all these task force? India is, and Japan is. So it's like there is, in fact, the pivot to India that is real and should not be like disregarded or brushed off. And we should actually be looking at it, especially when we consider the precious metal dynamic when it comes to that country. Did any of that make any sense, Matt? Absolutely. I think people talk a lot about gold demand in, in China, not just their government, but their population. And, you know, it's it's pretty opaque sometimes trying to figure out just how much is actually bought. But but there's no, even though it has become more opaque in India in terms of their, you know, silver imports or or, or silver demand in terms of investment in their, inside of their borders, there's no hiding the fact that that both silver and gold are are, are widely, you know, utilized by, by Indians as a savings account, right? Like, oh, it's just ceremonial. It's just, you know, it's just a gift. It's just a jewelry. Um, these are, these are huge pieces of jewelry by, by Western standards uh, because they're, they're sold for the purpose of their weight and value and not just their, yes. their looks. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think you're absolutely right. Um, what do you say? We, uh, what do you say we wrap this up, Paul? Yeah, definitely. We can wrap this up. I can go all day, but uh, we definitely get to a wrapping up point here. Um, but 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 definitely. So I think India is going to be one of those things to watch. And I can't remember you had just sparked another thought, but it's already gone out so fast. So <laughs> you can throw it in one of your blog posts. Yeah, throw it in one of my blog posts. That sounds good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, do you, do you got anything else uh, to kind of leave leave our viewers with before we uh, wrap this up? I do. I do. And it, and it actually ties in with this India and this inflation and even Turkey for that matter. But, you know, like if you look at what's going on with Turkey right now, people are like, oh, look how bullish this is for gold and silver. Look at this. The Turkish lira is hyperinflating. That's my point. Exactly. We need to be careful going into 2022, like 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 buy physical silver. And just if you can, if you're willing and able to hold on to it, that's the key. It's not the financial markets because people need to be careful because, Yes, everything is for silver to be going up in price. But when it comes down to it, like if you're in Turkey and you're faced with severe hyperinflation right now and you have some silver and you can't afford to eat, what are you doing right now? You're not buying gold and silver to protect yourself against the hyperinflation. You're actually spending your gold and silver because you're living through the hyperinflation, if that made sense. So 2022, I have not formulated my opinion on 2022 yet. I was right in 2021 with the exception of price. Um But with 2022, I don't know, because if things get really bad, you know, people talk about raising cash and there's no faster way to raise cash than with actual cash, which is gold and silver. So that's just what I want to leave viewers and listeners with uh, now, Matt. Yeah. And the big takeaway here is that, you know, if you're worried about the price of, of silver and gold, 
look to the margins, right? Because the counter to that is you could have people with a lot of wealth, paper wealth or other wealth, move into physical silver for the same reason, whether we're talking about Turkey or or the United States. So I think you're absolutely right. And and I agree. Um, I'm not completely bullish on silver and gold, at least for the next couple of months until, uh, until some of these things get sorted out. So um, as I said earlier, we can find Paul and all of his wonderful blog posts and a whole bunch of other things he shares over at silverdoctors.com. How's it been going over there? been going good it's rough um you know we have a lot less coverage and this is just not a warning but just to anybody that's in the alternative media at all um which would include most of the silver space you know um i hate to say the the phrase stay in your lane but but narrow down what you talk about because it is absolutely brutal the pressure on the alternative media continues. If you look at our website over the past several months now, it's markets in the economy and that's it. And, and, and we're not talking about anything else because it's absolutely brutal out there. So be careful and form your own, you know, opinions and analysis about what's really going on because a lot of people can't even talk about everything that's going on. So it's going great over at Silver Doctors, but all we're talking about is gold and silver and markets in the economy. And there's a reason for that. So be careful about it and seek out good information. And I do appreciate you for letting me come back on your show, Matt. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I look forward to having you on again, probably sometime in the next couple months. And, and we'll see how some of these predictions on inflation and whatnot pan out. But uh, thanks for coming on. And, and I uh, appreciate you taking this time out of your day. Thanks. Appreciate it.